Well, good morning, everybody. It's dark in here. There's the lights. Praise God. It's good to see everybody this morning. It seems so quiet in here this morning. I don't know what's going on. Uh, but, uh, man, it's a blessing to be here this morning. You guys feeling good? Look at your neighbor and say, it's, you're looking really good this morning. Like, it's like a Christmas, Christmas special kind of good. You know, they're, they're giving a bunch of snow for our Christmas services and like frigid uh, single-digit temperatures, so just, just stay tuned. We'll see what plays out, uh, but uh, we'll pick up everybody up in four-wheel drives and bring them on in for the service Friday if that's what happens, but uh, we're looking forward to that, and, and I want to thank everybody once again just for being so generous to be able to help 61 kids out, even more kids than that when it comes to the Freedom House and getting them a lot of gifts. I know they were all very pleased with that, and so thank you guys for that, and thank you for your donations as well for the Awaken Hope campaign. We appreciate you guys so much. So I'm going to dive into a message. Had a busy week, and I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick a bunch of scriptures and give commentary on it. Amen. Anybody okay, okay with that this morning? So we're going to read a lot of Bible this morning. You good with it? And I'm going to preach a message called The Birth of a Promise. The Birth of a Promise, and I'm going to be in Luke chapter 1 the entire time. Luke chapter 1. It's a good chapter. Now, when we talk about the birth of a promise, obviously we talk about Advent. Advent is the season we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the, the, the first coming of Jesus. And we not only celebrate His first coming, but we prepare our hearts for the second coming. But when I think about Christmas and what Scripture is trying to teach us concerning the Christmas season, it's really about hope, it's about faith. It's about having faith in impossible situations. It's about waiting and longing for God to come through and make good on His promises. Even through suffering, even through darkness, we still believe, just like we sung, that God is always good. And sometimes we know that that's often difficult to believe, isn't it? Sometimes we experience such darkness like we talked about last week that we, we get bitter, we get offended. In the waiting, we grow weary, we, we begin to doubt, we begin to be broken and hurt, hurting before this. But see, the thing is, is that throughout, from the beginning to the end, His promises stand as we just sung. And from the beginning, God gave promises. If, if you remember, even... Beginning, God gave a promise to Satan. He said, listen, I know that you've run amok of things. You've brought sin into the world. But I need you to understand something, Satan, that one day a day is coming that the seed of this woman, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And ever since that time, Satan has been aggravated. He's been agitated. He's been trying to bring an end to Christ. But no matter what he tried, he could not bring an end to the fulfillment of that promise that that son, Jesus Christ, came and was born of a virgin. And even when... When Satan did think he got him and crucified him on that cross, really it was just a death blow to his head. Amen. And so he gave that promise and throughout history, throughout Scripture, even in Isaiah, 700, 600 years before Jesus was born, you see Israel going through one of the darkest seasons of, of their history. Assyria is coming in to bring judgment and exile them. And in the middle of that darkness of a country going through one of the worst times they've ever been through, God starts dropping little nuggets of hope. He starts putting promises in their heart and mind, something for them to mull over, something for them to hold on to. He begins to tell them, he begins to give them a promise that, hey, a virgin is going to conceive and give birth to a son and you shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He says there's going to be a time come that, that when he comes, he's going to be called the, the, the mighty God, the, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, and the government's going to rest on his shoulders and of his government and of, of his peace, there's going to be no end. So they 
start to get fired up about this promise. They think maybe it's coming next week. You know what I'm saying? If God gives me a promise, I'm like, this is going to be here Thursday. You know, this is like Amazon, y'all. If I order it today, it's going to be two-day delivery free of charge. Amen. Don't you wish God's promises were like Amazon? That's one of the problems with the world we live in today is we, we get everything so quick that when God's timetable is different than ours, we get very frustrated. I mean, I'll be coming out of Price Holler onto Greenbrier and three cars will pass by and I'll say, my Lord, what they do up my 75? Because we want everything instantly. I mean, we want it instantly. We love microwave. When Andre got rid of our microwave, I about blew a gasket. I'm like, how do you expect me to heat food up? She said, Clay, there's a stove. I said, do you realize how long that takes? You realize how long it takes to heat food up in the stove? We're talking 10 minutes. I got too much stuff to do. No time on my hands. But man, waiting for a promise is hard, especially when we deal with a God that is from everlasting and he gives you these promises and you're waiting, you're, you're longing for this Messiah. They talk about this Messiah. That's God's wisdom incarnate. It's the embodiment of God's saving plans for the world and all of humanity. But here's the thing. If we are to be Christians, we learn to live by the promises of God. Yeah. Scripture says, matter of fact, that when we take hold of God's promises, through those great and precious promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. That means that when you go through dark seasons, when you go through bad seasons, as bad as it hurts, as difficult as it is, if you can lay hold of the promises of God, you will actually become a participant and a partaker of the divine nature. You will become more like God because you go through the darkness of this world holding on to the promises of God. If one thing doesn't... Listen, if you don't get everything you've ever wanted in this life, one thing you will get is at the end of this thing, you will be like Christ because you held on to Him. And one day, everything is going to be turned around. And so we hold on to those promises. But see, there's promises that come and they culminate in the greatest promises of all when Jesus first came. So let's take a look at this story that's familiar to all of us in this Christmas season. It begins in Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now I'm going to take a few rabbit trails, but here it says that they were both righteous before God because they obeyed the commandments of God. They, they, had a very, they had a very strict standard of life. They were going to keep the law of God. They obeyed the commandments of God. And it says that they were righteous before God because they did that. It's interesting because in the same Christmas story over in Matthew, it says that Joseph, it uses the same word, and it says that he was a righteous man. But it says that he was a righteous man because of this. Specifically, in context, he finds out that his betrothed woman is pregnant. Now, I don't know, I, that, for me, that would have messed with me. You know what I'm saying? Like, we ain't married yet. We ain't been together. You're pregnant. Bad day. Amen. Bad day. And so, but it says him being a righteous man decided to divorce her quietly. Now, see, that's interesting to me because if you've ever read the Old Testament... I just read Deuteronomy 22 this morning, and it goes through a list of like, hey, if you catch this guy committing adultery, take him out, kill him. 
You catch this woman committing adultery, you take them out, you kill them. You put them, if the one that you're betrothed to, you find out that she's been with another man before that, you take her out, you stone her to death. You purge yourself from the sin in the camp. Man, that's strong. But at the same time, there was a standard of such holiness in the old covenant because God was trying to get people to the point where they understood that they absolutely needed a Savior. And because they broke the laws of God, you know what they all deserved? You and I, whether you believe it or not, I know you think God is gracious and God is loving, and He absolutely is, but He needed you to know that you deserved death. You deserve death, folks. I wish I could say it much more gentler than that, but you and I have sinned against God. We've broken the laws of God, and we do things still in our lives that we treat as if it's no big deal. And God says, no, every sin that you commit is a very big deal. Such a big deal that my son had to come who was perfect and bleed and have his flesh torn and broken. And this is the very reason that he took on flesh. The very reason that he took on flesh was that he could come and he could die in your place and take the judgment and the penalty that you deserve. But see, righteousness sometimes is being willing to show compassion and love and mercy in the face of some of the greatest darkness that you'll ever see. Because Joseph, even though he was a righteous man in this particular case, rather than stoning her, he says, I want to divorce her privately. And God says that's a righteous thing. And I think the modern day stoning, honestly, is kind of like whenever we just blast people on social media. We don't stone people with rocks because we'll all go to jail. Okay? Bad idea. But we still stone people with our words. We still stone people on social media. And we like to make it public. And God says that if you want to be righteous, you will do what you can quietly in order to do what is best for that person. Who has done evil. Amen. Now there's a time that things need to be exposed. But oftentimes I've found that when God wants to expose something. He can expose it himself. But see he says there's something about this righteousness. Where he puts her away quietly. But see you see this scripture. It says that. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are barren. And it reminds you of the story from the beginning because you know where this all started. The promise went back to Abraham who was barren, who didn't have no children. And he was like 75 years old, him and his wife. And God comes and says, look, I'm going to bring the Messiah through your family line. And they're just sitting there like, what are you talking about? Bring the Messiah through our family line. And he says, no, you're going to have descendants as the sand on the seashore. Like this is going to happen through you. And through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. They're like, okay, Lord, we'll take that. Years go by, years go by, 10, 15, 20 years go by, nothing happens. God shows up again, Sarah's 90-some years old, and God says, no, we're still going to do it. You're still going to have this baby, and Sarah laughs. God ever given you a promise and told you I'm going to do something in your life, and, in your, and inwardly you just, <laughs> anybody in here. Like, you feel that way. You th- you just like, no, 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 this is ridiculous. God ain't going to do that in my life. I mean, I read the scripture, I hear the sermons, but God ain't going to do that in my life. This ain't going to happen in my life. And God responds, hey, Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? And she said, I didn't laugh, I didn't laugh. That's what I would have said to the Lord too. Be like, well, I didn't laugh, Lord, you misheard me. But you see that and it reminds you because the scripture says that Abraham, he hoped against hope. He hoped against hope and he he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, believing that if God promised it, he's also able to fulfill his promise of what he said. 
And so he was strengthened in faith and he moves into this situation. But you need to understand that faith and prayer are a prerequisite to the promise. For a promise to be birthed in our life, we've got to hold on to faith even in the darkest seasons. We've got to hold on to God's promise even when it looks like it is impossible for it to come to pass. And I love Zechariah and Elizabeth because if you even look at their names, Zechariah means Yahweh has remembered. He's remembered his promise. He remembers what he has said. And Elizabeth means God of his promise or God of his oath or God of his covenant. And those two names together, there's a marriage of this that, hey, guess what? I know it seems like things are past due and the promise isn't coming to pass, but God remembers and he is a God of his promise. And you all need to know that. I mean, in their very names, they knew God, that that was God's nature, but something had crept into their hearts where reality had set in and he brought them to a place where they're going to have to have radical faith and radical hope. Can I tell you this? That if you're going to grow in faith, matter of fact, God says that you're going to go through some trials in this life. You're going to go through some suffering. And through that pain and through that suffering, he says that your faith will be purified so that it will come forth like gold on the day that you see him. What do you want your faith to look like in the end? Because here's the thing, your faith is not going to be developed if everything in life is as easy as it can possibly be every single day of your life. But what we really want as Christians in America especially, what do we want? We want to serve God so that He makes our life as easy as it can possibly be. And can I tell you that God ain't interested in making your life as easy as it can possibly be. God is interested in making you like His Son Jesus Christ and getting glory for His name out of your life so that in the end you will have done the will of God and it will resound through all eternity for the glory of his name. And sometimes that means that you're going to go through some difficult seasons. But in verse 8 it says, While he was serving his priest Zechariah before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the, at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. I often think about coming in here in the mornings and just all of a sudden I look up here and there's just an angel standing. You know what I'm saying? Fear would probably fall upon me. I mean, I'd probably be troubled. And he was troubled at seeing this. He is, as a priest, he comes from the line of Aaron, and as a priest, it's his lot at this particular time to go into the temple and offer up incense. Incense, if you look throughout Scripture, is, is a symbol of prayer. They would offer incense at the altar of incense just before they went into the veil in the presence of God in the most holy place to offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And he's burning incense and a Jewish oral tradition says that whenever that incense would go up that the veil would open supernaturally. That they wouldn't even have to put a hand on it. That it would just begin to open. As if to say, as if God himself was saying that when you offer up to me your prayer and your worship, it comes before me as incense and I open my presence to you. Because when we begin to pray, we begin to enter into the presence of God. Prayer is most powerful from the presence of God. 
That's why when we pray, we come into a place of worship. And when we, when we come in here on Sunday mornings, I'm telling you, we ain't got this yet as a church, but we're working toward it because we've not yet figured out and understood that when we offer our worship and we offer our prayer, that veil is opening to us. And most of us, when we come in, we're just like, these are good songs. I'm going to sit and watch them sing them for three minutes. And I'm telling you, what you could be doing is offering your incense to the Lord and that veil could be opening before you and you could be entering into the presence of God and getting God's heart for that moment getting God's heart for that moment and he's offering this incense and in that moment in that moment of prayer I love it because in the book of Revelation it says that all of the prayers of the saints are being stored up in golden bowls of incense and in the end they're going to be poured out on the earth you know there's a day coming folks and I need you to understand this there's a day coming when every prayer will be answered yes at the return of the Lord Everything will be answered yes at the return of the Lord and it will be completely changed. So on the Day of Atonement, we see this, but see, prayer is a great mystery, isn't it? Sometimes we can see miraculous things. I mean, I got, we got a report. We were praying for, for Jennifer Smith back here. Just got a report. She's cancer-free, praise God. Amen. Like... And, and we had worry about that. We, they were worried more than anybody, obviously. I was worried about it. I was praying and believing that God would come through on that. God comes through on that. And prayer's a, a mystery because sometimes you see the miraculous in an instant of time, but then on other occasions you see prayers go unanswered. And we wrestle with it because we don't, we're like, Lord, what, what in the world is going on? I was talking to, to Richard this week, and he and I, we've been reading this book, he more so than I, but he shared a story with me, and, and I ended up reading it, going back through and reading it. But there was this, he was talking about prayer, and he talked about this woman, this pastor talked about this woman that he counseled with, and this woman had had a difficult life, but she had seen, she was a woman of great prayer. There were times when she was poor, broke, had nothing, and prayed for groceries, and people would drop groceries off on her door on her porch there was times when uh when she needed when she needed certain things in her life like that, that, that she would just pray for and miraculously there would be money there for rent just because she said lord i ain't got the rent boom she'd find a check with the rent for it like just praying for stuff like this one time she said god we're, we're living here now in this house and and me and my husband what we need more than anything is a microwave she prays that to the lord she's down helping out at a shelter for for sex trafficked women and while she's there somebody pulls up in a sketchy black cadillac he locks it up, gets out, and says, Hey, anybody here need a microwave? You know, and she said, Yeah, that'd be me. I just asked the Lord for that right there. So she's seeing, she's seeing these, these, these prayers answered like crazy, but she's infertile. She can't have a child. And she says, Lord, you can answer me on the most trivial things. But when it comes to the deepest desire of my heart, you won't give it to me. And she was a little bit bitter. She was a little bit angry. Well, she continues to pray. Her sister is also infertile they keep praying and guess what both of them get pregnant prayers answered praise God God moves in the situation but then what happens is her sister-in-law has a child and what they find is that behind where that child was in her womb was a great a big tumor a mass that ended up killing her one year later and the tumor was hidden behind the baby in her womb so that they could not see it and they say in the book that death was hiding behind life and so she wrestles with that. God, now you answer prayers, but in the answered prayer, there's death hiding behind it. Like, are you just out there to try to get us? Are you just out there playing games with us? And she, she, she keeps wrestling with these things. Here's a couple of things that she ends up saying. I want to give you a couple of things that she says. She says this, wrestling with God through persistent prayer 
is a confirmation of true belief because we need to wrestle with God in prayer. She said, it's not distressing doubt. Those who only half-heartedly believe don't take offense at silence. If you ain't believing, you ain't praying much, you don't care when God's silent because you ain't talking to Him anyway. It is only those of us who believe and believe hard, hard enough to walk out on a limb of faith with our full weight, who feel that limb snap beneath us and send us into a free fall without a harness, who care to wrestle with a God who at times seems fickle. It is only those who are offended by silence. Only those who are offended by silence. Now she's wrestling with the death of her sister-in-law and God answering some prayers and not others and she ends up going to a grief counselor and here's what she says and I love it. She says, in that grief counselor's office that day I made my decision. I chose trust. Not a trust that God willed Helen's cancer or death but a trust that God is good, that God is present in our suffering and that God will make all things new. And I need you to understand that we're going to go through suffering. We're going to go through pain in this loss. We're going to see great answered prayer. And we should pray and persist in prayer and believe God for great answered prayer. But when we experience pain and loss and suffering, we hold on to a promise that is honestly, in my mind, probably greater than any other promise. And that is that at the end of this thing, no matter what we've went through, no matter the pain we've experienced, Jesus is returning to make all things new. He will raise the dead up once again. He will heal all manner of sickness. He will wipe every tear from your eyes. And every single thing will be new. And you will not have to face death again if you are in Him. And that promise right there is enough for us to hold on to. And it can get us through anything. If it were not for that promise, the amount of depression and oppression that we would be under would be overwhelming. But see, my question is, given this understanding about prayer, do you think Zechariah is praying at this point? I don't know that he is. I think he's in there probably burdened. I think he's thought, you know what, Lord, I'm just serving you now at obligation. I love you, but you know as well as I do to not have a child is, is to have a curse, essentially. And I see throughout Scripture, you give Abraham a child, you give, you give all these other people a child, and all these things go, well, but you're not giving me a child. And you know what, I'll serve you because I love you, but it's out of obligation because I'm bitter and I'm angry and I'm really honestly deep down offended. And I don't, I don't really have anything for you, Lord. So he's just going in serving him out of obligation. And during this time, when he's in this place, it's so interesting because here's the thing. I want you to know this, that, that ultimately you're not going to be complete in anything except Christ. Whatever you ask God for, me and Andrea prayed to, to, to have a child for a long time and, and, and we ended up getting Naomi, right? We can't have our own biological children at this particular time unless God comes through and does a miracle. And, and you wrestle with that. I mean, we shed a lot of tears over that. But God comes through in another way and answers the prayer and, and there's healing and there's love and there's something greater on the end of those things. But there's always something that I feel like we're wrestling with. But in the process of those things, what you'll end up finding is that you're either going to get bitter and offended at God or you're going to realize that none of those things will ultimately fulfill you anyway because the only thing that's going to fulfill you is Christ himself. And that's a difficult thing for us to learn because why we want Christ and why we want God is for Him to give us the things we want. And what He's trying to tell us this entire life that we live is, I am the thing that you want. I am the thing that you want. You've just never been bold enough to enter into a real relationship with me. You've thought I was a genie or a fortune cookie or something that could just give you exactly what you wanted. But what you've always longed for, the, the, the healing from the pain, the joy, the peace, is to live for me. 
and to live in obedience to me and, and, and allow me to fill your soul. We are complete in Christ and no other longing that this world offers will ever fulfill that. So promises though, they still come to reignite hope. And we can find a promise in Scripture, and I really believe that even this morning there are going to be some people that walk out of here with a reignited faith and a reignited hope. Because God wants to bring you hope. He doesn't want you to just sit back and think, well, man, nothing good's going to happen. David said, I would have fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I want to see the goodness of the Lord in the here and now. I want to see Him move. Yeah, well, I'm going to have some suffering. I'm going to have some pain. But God's a God of restoration. God's a God of, of redemption. God is a God of hope. He's a God who loves to give good gifts to His children. And He wants to give you a promise to say, there's hope for a good future in this life in the here and now. Now, you may have to go through some stuff that ultimately you find that God is really the best part of it. But he wants to bring other good things to you and other good gifts in this life. And the angel comes to him and when he's in there praying, he says, the angel says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, this could be translated. In the Greek language, it's called aorist passive tense. But it could be translated, the prayer that you prayed but stopped praying is heard. I want you to think about that. Because we talk about persistence in prayer all the time. You ever prayed a prayer so long that you stopped praying it? Even me saying that, I can think of prayers that I prayed for a long time and stopped praying them because they didn't come to pass. And the angel shows up and says, Hey, Zechariah, you know how you're real bitter and offended at God? He didn't say that, but I think that's kind of maybe what's going on in his mind. You know how you're real bitter and suffering and you're just doing all this out of obligation? Well, the prayer that you prayed many years ago, but you stopped praying because you now thought it was impossible, that prayer was heard. That prayer was heard, and now is the time for that prayer to, be, to come to fulfillment and be answered. And with the names, I love the way God does names sometimes because their names mean something. John means something. Elizabeth means something. Uh, Zechariah means something. So it could be translated, do not be afraid, Yahweh has remembered. For your prayer has been heard and God's promise will bear you a son and you shall call him Yahweh is gracious and he's faithful to his covenant. I don't know if that does anything for you guys. So verse 14, it says, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now I like this because it says they're going to rejoice at his birth. He's going to be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He's going to take a Nazarite vow. He's going to be consecrated in a way that most people aren't. Can I tell you that as a Christian... All of us are called to holiness. You believe that? Can we say amen this morning? Amen. All of us are called to holiness. That doesn't mean that as a Christian some of us get to live like the devil and it'd be okay. Like all of us are called to grow. It takes us a while to get there. It takes us a while to be sanctified, purified by the Spirit and walk in holiness and purity. But all of us are called to it. But see, in order to get there, what you have to understand is that there has to be an intentional consecration. There are things in your life that if you want to see the promises of God fulfilled in your life, you have to say no to some things and yes to other things. That's one of the reasons why at the beginning of the year we usually have 21 days of prayer and fasting. And at the very least we say, look, even if you don't eat food, it would probably be good for most of you to turn your social media off for about three weeks to consecrate yourself to the Lord because you ain't done nothing but feed yourself po poison for an entire year. 
Hallelujah. And what God says is if you want to see some promises fulfilled, there are moments when you say no to certain things so that you can say yes to God in many other areas of your life. And that consecration puts you in a position where you can receive the fulfillment of the promises of God. Many of us, we get so contaminated with the things of the world that we can't even see the promise of God when it comes. And God's saying, I want to open you up to some things, but you need to consecrate yourself. And I love it because Jesus comes in when John the Baptist is on the scene. He said, man, there's no greater prophet than John the Baptist. And I think to myself, what do you mean there's no greater prophet than John the Baptist? you got Elijah. You got Elisha. I mean, they raised people from the dead. They called fire down from heaven. Only thing I know about John the Baptist is that he called out, you know, uh, Herod and said, Look, buddy, you need to quit sleeping with your brother's wife and all this stuff. Like, like he's he just calling him out. He didn't have any miracles. But the thing that, that, that John the Baptist had that none of the other prophets had was that he was able to point directly to Jesus. All of the prophets, the point of their existence was ultimately to point to Jesus. And he was the greatest because he showed up and pointed to Jesus. And can I tell you this? You're all called. You all have a ministry. And every single one of us here, what our greatest calling is, is to come and point to Jesus. It's to point people to Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We got so many people that are pregnant and they continue, we continue to have babies, praise God. I like this, though. It says that he was filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb. Even from his mother's womb. I'd pray that over my pregnant baby. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, we'll pray that over the pregnant women in here. Like, and even our little babies pray they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Pray that they're empowered by God even from their youth. Believe God for these types of things so that God can use them. Verse 18, it says, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. That's a real polite way of saying it, right? She's advanced in years. And the angels answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. I love this because Zechariah's like, how am I going to know this? And he's like, how are you going to know this? An angel is standing in your presence, Zechariah. What do you mean, how are you going to know? What better sign do you need than an angelic being with wings that just came out of the presence of God and has an aura around them and probably gold dust floating that this is going to come true? And he speaks to him and he's like, what do you, what do you mean? But isn't that, isn't that the case with us as well? That even when things smack us in the face from the Lord, we still function in unbelief because some trauma from our past has made us offended at God. We function out of offense uh, to, to, toward God most of our lives because of something that happened in the past so that we're now for the rest of our lives unable to receive any good thing from the Lord. And he's offended. He's now functioning out of unbelief because of something that has happened. And you know what the angel does? He said, look, because you didn't believe my words, mute button. He said, you ain't going to be able to speak until these things are fulfilled. And i got to be honest with you, sometimes I wish that an angel would show up and put a mute button on me. Y'all agree with me on this, right? Like, do you, don't you just wish every now and then you'd start talking and it just, it'd be just mute and they'd be like, what are you saying? Because it'd probably be better if they didn't hear what I'm saying. I need you to understand that word, the words that you speak, the things that you post on Facebook, the things that you say, they can abort God's promises for your life. 
You say, well, I just don't know about that. I mean, God makes a promise. You know, it's going to come to pass. Well, guess what? God gave a promise to the children of Israel, and rather than believe God, they complained 14 times in the wilderness. And the 14 times that they complained because of it, God said, you will not enter the promised land because of your unbelief. And He gave them a promise that they would go there. And most of them didn't make it. Why? Because of their complaining. Because, and you know what? Probably one of my greatest weaknesses, I don't know about you, but one of my greatest weaknesses is complaining. You know where complaining comes from? It comes from fear. And it comes from unbelief because you're afraid that something isn't going to happen or something is going to happen or something isn't going to work out the way that you want it. So in order to sort of relieve the tension and stress of the fear that you have, you choose to complain. I try to justify it sometimes when I complain because I'm just like, well, you know, I just don't want, I just don't want to get my hopes up. Can I tell you that God wants you to get your hopes up? Even, even if you come around me and I'm mega negative, you need to say, you know what, Clay, you're functioning under the devil right now, son. And I know you're a pastor, but I need to tell you that you need to get your hopes up. And whether you're going to be negative or not, I'm going to keep my hopes up. I'm going to believe God for a miracle. I'm going to believe that he's going to come through. I'm going to believe that he's good. And I'm going to expect him to move in this situation. That is what God wants to see in our hearts. But because he did not join faith to that promise, he's muted and Elizabeth conceives. And then it says in verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel now moves to another location. And he was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose, whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now we always talk about highly favored. Like the angel shows up, speaks to Mary, and calls her highly favored, the favored one. Now when you think about being favored, what do you think about? What do you like? What I, I tell you, what I think we think about when we think about being favored, we think about having plenty of money in the bank. We think about consumerism and materialism. Like I've got the truck that I want, I got the house that I want, I got the woman that I want, I got good coon dogs. Like you know what I'm saying? Like we, we think about all of the things that we have, and that's what means we are favored. We got a good job, good income, good wife, good house, and everything's smooth, and we're at peace. But this woman right here, Mary, she got none of that. She's a peasant girl, broke as a joke, under Roman rule and oppression, probably 13 or 14 years old. She's got nothing. I mean, things are not going good for them. She's living in a time where she's far poorer than you and I ever thought about being, okay? Like, she's in a bad, bad situation. And she's just a teenager. And to add insult to injury, this angel comes up to her and says, Hey, Mary, you're going to be pregnant here soon. And I'm thinking, Mary's like, you know what? You're going to sit here and call me favored and tell me I'm 13, 14 years old in the situation I'm in and now you're going to get me pregnant and I ain't even married yet, which means I might be stoned to death. Thank you very much there, angel. Worst case scenario, I'm going to be very ridiculed. Why don't you just go down here to Ruth? I mean, she's got a husband that's got a good job. I still got college that I got to go to. My body, my choice. I mean, there's a lot of things, a lot of issues going on here. Uh, that's, what, that's how a, a young lady from our generation would have responded to the angel. I got too much going on. Who are you to call me favorite? I'm a victim. I'm a victim. And she responds quite a bit differently than we would because when we think about the presence, of, I, I even think about it, highly favored. Because when she ends up getting pregnant and having this baby, get this, all of a sudden, oh yeah, we're favored. 
guess what, Mary, you're about to give birth, and now they're sending out a census for taxes to be done, and you've got a 90-mile ride from Nazareth to Bethlehem on a donkey. How many of you pregnant women, you in your eighth month, and you're about to ride 90 miles on a donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Anybody? You a woman of God. I know how women get when they're pregnant. You know what I'm saying? So uh, to me, I'm like, this, this does not seem like favor, but he ties it in. He says, you're favored. Why? Because the Lord is with you. What God promises is not that you won't have struggles, not that you won't have difficulties, not that you won't have seasons of darkness, but he promises that he will be with you in the darkness. He'll be with you in the difficulty. He'll be with you in the struggle and he will empower you to make it through so that you will learn and you will receive gifts from heaven in the process that you could not receive otherwise. And I'm telling you, I bet Mary come out on the other end of that and by the end of the thing, she, where, where Mary's at right now, do you think she even cares that she had to ride 90 miles on a donkey? I bet she looks back on it she says, you know what, I'm grateful for that moment. I'm grateful for that moment because God gave her a new perspective in the end of all things. But in verse 29, it says she was greatly troubled at the saying, just like we said. I mean, I would have been too. She tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end and Mary said to the angel how will this be since I am a virgin now she asked a question a lot like Zechariah asked but it's different Zechariah is asking out of doubt but she's asking because she legitimately wants to know how it's possible I'm a virgin how's it possible for me to have a child and she's wrestling with this how shall I know the angel answers her and says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He says the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, Mary, and you're going to give birth to a son. You're going to conceive in your womb. And this is a supernatural act. You know, it's, it's really similar to the same way that you and I are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And when we turn to Jesus and repent from sin, and we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and in us and regenerates us and gives us a new birth. We are born again by the Spirit of God. And that is why we inherit eternal life because we have a spirit that is capable of inheriting eternal life because of this. Now, both Mary and Joseph came from David's royal line. Joseph, Joseph came from David's son Solomon and Mary came from David's son Nathan. But what we need to understand is that Jesus does not carry Joseph's blood. Medical science will tell you that the blood of a baby comes from the father. But what we understand is that Joseph, right, is not the biological father of this boy even though through Joseph he has a double claim to the throne of David Jesus does because both his mother and both his earthly father come through the line of David and he's gonna sit on the throne of David that's the promise that's the fulfillment but what we know is that his blood is divine blood because the Holy Spirit takes the eternal Word of God and fleshes it in a sperm if you will it, it, it creates a zygote in the, in the womb of Mary. And it, that baby has the divine blood so that he can live a sinless life. See, you and I blood, our blood comes from Adam. 
And we have sin running through our veins and we need to be saved in order for this to overcome sin. We need the Spirit of God to overcome the sin within us. But Jesus came, was pure. He had the divine blood and He shed His blood on the cross. In verse 36 it says, And behold... Your, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. I asked somebody this week, I ain't going to tell you who it was, but I said, can you name to me one thing impossible? And the first thing he said was, it's impossible to please a woman. I said, well, I better not say that Sunday, but I did anyway. My dad used to say, when we talk about things, he used to say this saying, I've mentioned it a few times, but he said, you know, there's, something, there's, there's a couple things you can't do. One of them is you cannot get into a Cadillac, take off driving that Cadillac, and drive that Cadillac up your nose. Nobody laughs at that. Every time I tell it, nobody laughs. But you cannot drive a Cadillac up your nose, can you? And so sometimes I get aggravated about people saying, well, nothing's impossible, nothing's impossible. Right now, I cannot jump and go into outer space. It is impossible. Y'all ain't even laughing. You're just like, Clay, I don't like this. You're, you're, you're being negative. <laughs> Things are possible, brother. Anything is possible. If you wanted to jump and God wanted it, no. I'm telling you, some things are impossible. What this scripture says, though, if you read it, nothing shall be impossible with God. The word nothing is a very specific word. It says no rhema. Rhema is the freshly spoken word of God. What he's saying is, not just nothing is impossible, but no word that comes from God is ever impossible. If God says it, if God came to me and said, Clay, you're about to jump, and when you jump, you're going to go into outer space, then it's possible. But unless God speaks it, it doesn't have the power of possibility on it. But when God speaks something, no matter how crazy it may sound, it still is possible. He makes all things possible because of His Word. And I love what Mary says in verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, I want you to think about this. A 14-year-old girl, most likely, she responds and she says, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Now, we just take that as nonchalant, no big deal. It's a statement we gloss over. She uses the word doulos, which means a bond servant. And what she means in saying that is whatever you say, regardless of how I feel, Regardless of whether I understand, I am your slave, I am your servant, I will do whatever you say no matter what. I don't care what you ask me to do, I'm your bond servant. Imagine having that attitude toward God. God, I don't care what you ask me to do. I don't care if it doesn't fit my comfort. I don't care if it doesn't fit my current emotional state. I don't care if it fits current cultural trends. I'm going to do what your word says regardless because I'm your bond servant. If I don't like it, I'm your servant. I'm not a servant of this world. I'm not a servant of my passions. I'm not a servant of my lusts. I'm not a servant of my desires. I am the servant of the Lord. And she says, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. See, this is, should be your response to the word of God. The word of God, let it be, is amen. Amen means let it be to me in the Hebrew language. And the scripture says that all of the promises of God are yes and they are amen in Christ Jesus. That means that God has said all these promises in Christ are yes and therefore you respond by saying let it be unto me. You need to take some of scripture and some of God's word and say Lord you see that right there that you wrote let it be unto me. 
Behold the servant of the Lord, let it be unto me as you have written in your word. And we respond to those promises through faith, believing that God is going to work it out for us in our lives. And see, some of us are too smart for our own good, aren't we? We see situations in our life and we get so smart that we're just like, you know what, God, you ain't going to do that in my life. I know better. I mean, it should be on the realm of possibility now. I mean, that's there. I get it, but really I don't believe it. And God's saying, no, I want you to come into a position where you can believe once again. So Mary's dealt with this situation. She goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And here's what she says in verse 43. It says, why is this granted to me? This is when Mary comes into Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary's pregnant with Jesus. They're cousins. Elizabeth is old. She's about 70 or 80. And Mary's about 14, but they're still cousins. They're both pregnant. So they're going to spend some time together. Mary's going to try to lay low for a minute so nobody kills her. Amen. Like good season, good time. And she says, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth calls out to Mary and calls the fetus that is in Mary's womb her Lord. And then she says about her own baby that her own baby leapt in her womb whenever she heard Mary come in the door. This will change your theology about an unborn child, won't it? It really will. This baby leaps in womb for joy. That baby in there, she calls her Lord. She just called a fetus in the womb her Lord. Imagine the revelation that's breaking out right now. She says that's the Lord God in your womb. The miracle of Christmas, y'all. I can sit and take my time on that right there because when you allow something like that to soak into you, that God himself enters in among us, experiences what we experience. He was in the womb the same way you were. He was nursed by his mother's side the same way that you were. But John the Baptist leapt for joy in his mother's womb. And you know why? Because joy is found in purpose. And he knew that his Lord, the whole reason he existed, the reason he was on that earth was to point to Jesus. And when his purpose came into that room, he leapt for joy. And many of you don't experience joy. You know why? Because you're still focused on yourself. You find joy when you remove your focus from yourself and what you can get and put your focus on Jesus and what you can give. And in that place, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And because you find that purpose, your heart leaps for joy. And you find purpose and you find meaning. And he knew that when Jesus came into that place. I hear stories all the time about missionaries that, that have been killed and martyred. And they write and they testify about being beaten for the Lord Jesus Christ for preaching the gospel in places that they shouldn't be allowed to. And being imprisoned. And they pray. Listen, I want you to understand this. That there are missionaries in other countries that pray that persecution will come to America because they know how much it has refined them. And they say that there's no greater joy than suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that. We think there's no greater joy than like getting a $200 gift card on Christmas. You know what I'm saying? How is it that our hearts are moving in that direction? But see, she says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. See, belief often determines fulfillment. Belief often determines fulfillment. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And when we believe God for things, it moves the spiritual realm. Something happens. And she says to her, blessed is she who believes. I love this too because you got two women talking. And they're, they're, thinking, they're, they're thinking about this moment that they're carrying 
the, the greatest shift in human history in their womb. Elizabeth, Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, is in the other room, and she says, she says to Mary, Blessed are you who believed. John over in the other room, he didn't believe. He can't even talk. You know, you, you, imagine, you imagine like your wife just giving you a hard time for nine months. He can't even talk. He didn't believe the Lord. I mean, that's, that's what I'd be like. He's in the other room listening to this conversation, and all of a sudden Mary and, 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 and Elizabeth are filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, and we're still calling her blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm and He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She busts out in this song and really the song is about two specific things. The song is about pride and the song is about humility. The song is about pride and humility. And you got these women that are about to bring the three greatest... They're, they're about to give birth to this promise throughout the ages that is going to bring about the greatest three decades in human history and transform life for all of us. And they're saying to themselves, Who am I? Who am I that the mother of my Lord? Who am I that the Lord should come unto me and give me this blessing and give us these promises? Can you imagine reading those promises for years and years and years and then all of a sudden reading those promises and realizing I'm the one that's going to fulfill this. In verse 52 he says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Everybody God uses throughout Scripture. He used David and nobody was even considering David for king. They left him out by the sheep. He used Moses who was 80 years old and had a speech impediment. And then he used Peter who was basically a blue collar redneck who didn't have sense God gave a chicken. But he said, These are the men that I'm going to use to bring about change in the world. I love how God chooses to use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He says, if you think you've got it together, I'm going to bring you down. But if you realize you don't have it together, I'm going to lift you up in my sight. And, he, and she's singing this song about humility. I'm going to exalt these ones. Even when God comes, what palace is He born in? He's born in a barn by a poor young girl who ends up becoming a refugee and has to flee to Egypt. Because of the, de the threat of death to her son. But see, people that are filled with pride, they walk with a false sense of control. People that walk, that, that walk in pride have a false sense of control and they try to plan everything out and they try to control other people, they try to manipulate other people and they don't want anybody coming at their kingdom. And they sit on the throne of their life saying, you know what, I got this figured out, I don't need help. They distance themselves from the Lord. They distance themselves from the things of the Lord. Why? Because they got it together. They got it figured out. And God says, if you live in that kind of pride, the day is going to come when I'm going to bring you low. But if you start from a place of humility where you recognize and you realize, man, I need help and I need a lot of it, 
God brings you into a place where you can be filled. It says, verse 53, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. See, it's a humble stance to admit when we're hungry. It's a humble stance to realize and say, Lord, I've messed everything up. I've broken everything. I'm a sinner, and I'm hungry for you, God. I'm hungry for your presence. But see, when you're just cramming your life full of everything in this world and you think you don't have need of anything, he says, you know what, I'm just going to send you away empty. I'm not going to give you anything of this. There's something about that. Verse 51, she says, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts. And the imaginations of our hearts is honestly this, is that I'm smarter than God, everybody else is wrong, and I'm right. That's the imaginations of the hearts of the proud. And God says, no, you live in that kind of life, you're going to find yourself scattered, running to and fro throughout the earth, looking for, for purpose because you were simply unwilling to humbly submit to God in obedience. I don't know if you realize this or not, but God knows better than you. Even when you think you do. Even when you think, but I deserve this. But I've been hurt. But I've been this. But I've been that. God still knows better than you. He wants to heal you. He wants to change your life. Some people in their pride, they live in an imaginary world where they say everything is okay and they don't realize that they desperately need Jesus. So John is born. On the eighth day, they're going to circumcise him. The promise has come to fulfillment. In verse 63, it says, He asked for a writing tablet when he's born. Zechariah does. And he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. He wrote out John, which is Yahweh is full of grace. He's faithful to his covenant. He watched the promise of God go full circle, waiting years and years on end for this prayer to be answered. Went through offense, went through bitterness, went through anger, went through doubt and unbelief. An angel come and silenced him and shut his mouth for nine months so that he wouldn't abort the promise of God. And all of a sudden everything comes full circle and he's filled with the Spirit. And he sees, you know what, God is faithful. He's good to his promise no matter how long I have to wait. And he ends up being filled with the Spirit. Verse 67, I'm ending here. He said, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he basically says, look, God has visited us and he has redeemed his people because of this Jesus that is to be born. He has brought a way of salvation in Jesus. We're delivered from the hand of our enemies because of Jesus. We can now serve God without fear and in holiness because of Jesus. John the Baptist and you are called to point to Jesus. Jesus is salvation and Jesus is the only one who grants forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the one who gives light to those who sit in darkness. 
darkness. And if you will allow him, Jesus will guide you into the pathway of peace. Amen. Jesus is the promise of God fulfilled, and that's what Christmas is really all about. Christmas is not about your presence, and it certainly isn't about Santa Claus. And, it, I mean, and I'm, not, I'm not here to be a stickler about all that stuff, but man, it is amazing how bunched up in the entanglements of this world we can get and forget about this moment in time when the creator of the ends of the earth, of everything that you've ever known, stepped into this earth so that you could have a relationship with him. So that you could know him. That you could be set free from your enemies, the enemy of sin, the enemy of death. And you could know Jesus. We're going to receive communion. And before we do, I want us to bow our heads. And we're just going to pray together. And then they're going to pass out these communion cups. But here's the thing. Before we receive communion, in your heart, before you receive communion, you need to know where you stand with God. God loves you so much. And if you've not given your life to Jesus, if you've not put faith and trust in Him for your salvation, then now's a great time to do it. And if, if you would be willing to do that and surrender your heart to the Lord and just as an act of faith, let it be made known, would you just lift your hand right now and say, that's me, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. I want it to be known before me and God right here this morning that I'm going to follow Jesus. I want to receive His salvation. I want Him to lead me into this path of peace. Anybody at all. Anybody here this morning? So just take a moment. I want you to pray. Lord, we just thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. And there's so many people here this morning, God, that they've been waiting on a promise. They've been praying and believing for something. And God, I pray that you would reignite hope, that you would reignite faith. And that, God, as they pray, you would become the answer to that prayer. And, God, you would grant them a promise of good things to come. You would restore hope in their life. And, Father, you would minister to their hearts and to their spirits in every single area that they're going through. And where there's doubt, where there's fear, where there's questions, where they're maybe even offended, Lord Jesus, that you would just let them know that you are with them right there in this moment. And that, God, you plan to bring them through that to show them good things. So, Father, we just bless each person. And, Lord, as we get ready to receive your body and to receive your blood, we want to meditate on the fact that you took on flesh. And God, that's the incarnation. You took on flesh, and that flesh, your body was broken for us. Your blood was shed for us so that we could be forgiven for all of our sin. And so, Lord, we confess our sin to you this morning, and we ask for a fresh cleansing from that sin. But God, let us once again reignite our, our complete faith and our complete trust in you, Jesus, and give you all the worship and all the glory that you deserve for coming and saving our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.